Almighty God, your word comforts and challenges us. It inspires and disciplines us. Help us now to put aside all that hardens our hearts so that we may be readied for your great and liberating works. Amen. Amen. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. He stood in line along with everyone else to be baptized. And in that moment, everyone present saw the sky break open and a dove descend, and they heard a voice from heaven speaking to Jesus, saying, You are my son, my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. After an epiphany like that, everyone, including Jesus perhaps, might have expected him to exhibit superpowers. They might have looked to him to become a superhero, no longer human. But we know that is not what happened. We know Jesus remained fully human, undertaking all the risks, the vulnerabilities, and consequences of being human. To underscore how very human Jesus was, Luke lays out for us in the verses that follow this baptism story, Jesus' genealogy. Over the course of 15 verses, Jesus, Luke tells us, was the son of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mathet, son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Janai, son of Joseph, son of Mathathias, son of Amos, son of Nahum, son of Esli, son of Nagai, son of Math, son of Mathathias again, son of Semain, son of Josech, son of Joda, son of Joanan, son of Risa, son of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, son of Neri, son of Melchi, son of Adi, son of Cossum, son of Elmadam, son of Ur son of Joshua, son of Eliezer, son of Joram, son of Mathat, son of Levi, son of Simeon, son of Judah, son of Joseph, son of Jonam, son of Eliakim, son of Malia, son of Mena, son of Mathatha, son of Nathan, son of David, son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, son of Salah, son of Nachshan, son of Aminadab, son of Admin, son of Arni, son of Hezron, son of Peza, Perez, son of Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, son of Terah, son of Nahor, son of Serug, son of Ru, son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shelah, son of Canaan, son of Arpaxad, son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalalil, son of Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Amen. Amen. Generations deep into humanity, Jesus was born. He was baptized and carried out his purpose within a bent and crooked world, an inextricable web of humanity our flaws, our sin. There was no chance that anyone, including Jesus, could get through life in a way imagined by John the Baptist as either wheat or chaff, the one so easily separated from the other, 
simply with a winnowing fork and some wind. As striking as it was, the agricultural image in which harvested grain is tossed in the air with a winnowing fan so that the wind can separate the wheat from the chaff, allowing the wheat to fall away from the chaff and be stored while the chaff could be burned, just wouldn't suffice. Even Jesus, the Son of God, doesn't separate himself out from others. He's willing, along with a crowd of other people, to be baptized by John the Baptist. Not because he's chaff and needs to become wheat. These are not the terms by which Jesus will be identified. As the voice from heaven made clear in his baptism, Jesus' baptism is an affirmation of who Jesus already is. You are my child, God says, whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. What a powerful reaffirmation this is. Jesus was 30 years old when he heard these words spoken in his baptism, just before he began his public ministry. His parents had heard similar pronouncements made about him just after his birth. Jesus would hear them again before he would begin his final walk toward Jerusalem, where he would be imprisoned, tried, and crucified. These words spoken to him more than once throughout his life, I imagine, sustained him, especially at those times when he needed most to draw on them, when he felt tested, alone, and like it might be him against the world. I just finished reading a book entitled Gone to the Woods, written by Gary Paulson. His name may be familiar to younger readers because he won the Newbery Honor for children's literature three times. His recently published book, Gone to the Woods, is his true story of growing up in the wild. That's how he describes his childhood, one of growing up by himself of fending for himself, of surviving barely on his own, in a world that seemed to be against him so much that he took refuge in the woods. His childhood was one of neglect. There were no adults in his family that he could count on. At school and in town, he ran into peers who would make fun of him and bully him. He found refuge in the woods. Escaping into the woods felt like going home to him, since he really didn't have much of a home. In the woods, he could get away from the boys that bullied him and the adults that he couldn't trust. He was always thinking about how he could run away into the north woods of North Dakota, all the way up to Canada. He had it planned. He knew he could be smart enough to run away and this time to make it stick. He knew how he would survive, catching fish and cooking over a fire, what he would do if he encountered a bear again, how he would keep the bugs away with smoke from the good-sized blaze that he would get going. With all his plans made, his mind preoccupied with those plans, he wondered why he didn't run away now, now that he was 13, the perfect time for running. And right in the middle of his swirling thoughts, 
the reason came to him. The library. No, not exactly. Not only the library. It was the library and the librarian. It wasn't the library as much as the librarian. As he thought about it, he wondered why he would stay for the librarian. She was a grown-up, after all, and he had no luck with grown-ups. Grown-ups had either altogether neglected him or tried to entrap him. To his surprise, after stopping for the first time into the town's library, just because it was open and had heat, the library had become a safe place for him. When he couldn't be in the woods, he would head there to the library. And there the librarian noticed him without trapping him. She offered him a library card for free. As he looked at the card, held it in his hand and studied it, his name, his number, a strange thing happened. Somehow, he writes, the card made him feel real to himself. It was his name, his number, right there. In all the world, he had finally become a real person. Right there in the world, a real person. Becoming real, becoming known to himself, kept happening more and more in the library. With each book he read she, and she asked him to tell her about, he found her listening. Was all that in the book? The librarian asked. Not exactly, he said, but the book made me think of things I had seen. It was like an opening, like the book opened my brain to let it see other word pictures somehow. One day, the librarian reached under the countertop and brought out a pocket notebook and a brand new yellow number two wooden pencil sharpened. She set them in front of him and said, you can read and get mind pictures, which is interesting and important, but you can see things, do things, learn things on your own and see if you can write them down to make mind pictures for other people to see, to understand, to know, to know you. Who? Who? Write it down for who? He couldn't imagine who would want to understand or know him. An ugly kid with bad hair, old clothes, no money, just a nobody. A wrong kid in the wrong place with the wrong people at the wrong time doing all the wrong things. Who would even care about him and what he had to write? Well, me, for instance, she said. You could show it to me. It stopped him cold. He writes, ultimately, it saved him. These words, this gift, was an epiphany to that 13-year-old boy. Gary Paulson tells this story about how he came to write his first story using that notebook and pencil given to him by a librarian who cared to know him. All of us 
are constituted by the relationships we have with other people. We come to know ourselves as real, as existing, when other people know us. If we're lucky, we will have in our lives that one person who cares about us deeply. If we're even luckier, we'll have a host of people who care to know us, and not just to know us in some partial way, but to know us fully as children of God. All of us need that affirmation of who we are, and we need it not just once, but again and again throughout our lives. Even as an adult, Jesus heard these words spoken more than once, and each time it was an epiphany. It made sense of his life and what he has to do in it. For us to each time we receive the affirmation that we are children of God, it's an epiphany, a moment to see or understand ourselves and everyone else in a very clear, comprehensive way. Baptism is the church's ritual by which we affirm this identity. Confirmation is when it is reaffirmed. And just as it was for Jesus in our lives as Christ's disciples, it is reaffirmed again and again. The church is the body that affirms what God has already created us to be. And this affirmation makes all the difference. You see, all of us are part of different groups, families, sports teams, book clubs, interest groups, identity groups, support groups, political parties, social clubs, professional organizations, and on and on. Each group to which we belong gives us a partial sense of our identity. A daughter, a mother, a runner, a scholar, a person of color, a Rotarian, a Republican, a member of a teacher's union, and so on. As the body that affirms our identity as children of God, however, the church is not just one group among the many to which we belong. To belong to the body of Christ is much more holistic than belonging to any clan, club, or group of people formed around a partial identity. Because the affirmation that you are a child of God puts you in responsible relationship to everyone, to all of humanity. Reflecting on the relational nature of our existence as children of God, theologian Marjorie Suchaki tells the story of a time when she served on the jury for a case in which the defendant was found guilty. Although she believed that the individual committed the crime for which he was convicted, after the trial ended, she began to reflect on her own place in the society that formed and eventually indicted this man. As a member of this web of societal and institutional relationships, she wondered if she had some relation to the man's circumstances. She writes, The sorry world of the crack house had seemed so distant from my world as the academic dean of a theological seminary. But in truth, that other world was only a few miles from my home. 
Where did that world start and where did it stop? My world was geographically close, but had I ever intentionally done anything at all to touch the lives in that other world? Was I only involved to judge its inhabitants? Or was there not a sense in which I was a participant in that world as well as mine, even if that participation was as an absentee neighbor? Creating us and claiming us as God's own, God puts us in inextricable relationship with all other people. And it's up to us in these relationships to wrestle with and figure out what our responsibility is for and to one another. It is what Jesus himself, as the Son of God, had to figure out. What would his relationship to all of us be? Was he put on this earth just to judge us, to separate us into groups of wheat and chaff? Surely not. It is what each of us, as children of God and siblings of Christ, also have to figure out. How are we interrelated, inextricably? What are our responsibilities for one another? How can we be there, really be in the world for one another? Amen. Amen.